Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to the Infinite Jest Book Club and Fellowship and Support Group. Um, we have many of the usual suspects here. And thank you again, Liz. Uh, now get out of here. Uh, and so we are here. Audio. Does everyone else have audio? I do. Yes, everyone can hear me except mm -hmm. Erica. Mm -hmm. What's going on uh -oh. there? Um, so yeah, to uh, pick up where we left off. So we left off with um, Helen's, Helen Hugh Steepley's article about mm -hmm. the heart in a purse mm -hmm. getting stolen. And so here we are. So picking up, we have the alphabetical list of anti-Onan groups, um, which- Super helpful. Yeah, it kind of is. Um, now, in terms of the narrative, we really haven't gotten to the explanation of Onan, but um, basically, mm, mm. Uh, Johnny Gentle, uh, Las Vegas crooner, runs for president on the platform that he is going to clean up um, the continent, clean up America. Um, and then the impression that I get is that he wins kind of by surprise or maybe wasn't really anticipating winning. And now he's like, fuck, uh, how do we do this? Um, so what they do is they give away land uh, they, the United States, gives away land mm -hmm. that they have polluted um, with the annular annulation, which um, was a discovery by himself that basically catapults all of the trash into what is now referred to as the great concavity or the great convexity. Mm. And this area of ultra pollution is then given to Canada so that Johnny Gentle can say, see, I followed through on my camp campaign promise to clean up America, um, which of course is now part of Onan, uh, the organized nation of American nations one of many redundancy redundancies in this book in terms of names. Um, mm -hmm. And I think we'll see some today, the uh, Ennett House Drug and Recovery mm -hmm. House, right. um, you know, Department of Redundancy Department, things like that. Um, so uh, predictably or not, there is some pushback to you know dumping all all the shit in this area and then giving it to canada um so that is 
the uh, impetus, I guess, of these anti-Onan groups. Um, anything jump out at anybody from taking a look at these groups um, and the way they are presented? To see how some of the groups are more violent or really violent, more violent than others, and how we can, at least um, during, after we've read the book, we can associate, right, the different anti-Onan groups to these different degrees of violence. Like when I when I went over this list again, I thought about that group, the Hawaiians, they, they <laughs> um so, and, and it makes you understand, at least me, it made me understand, oh, right, makes sense, right? They, they, they reacted that way. They're super violent. I don't really remember. I have to go back to the list. I don't really remember. Yeah, they're, they're, they're listed as V equals violent, W yeah. equals extremely violent. Okay. So, yes. Yeah, so, so that clicked this time. Like, of course, this group is supposed to be very violent. So that's why I said this list to me at least is super helpful from that. Yeah. Um, I thought it was funny that it's presented as an alphabetical list, but all of the groups start with lay, either L-E-S or L-E, huh. except for one starts with a C. It's Calgarian pro-Canadian phalanx, and that's the third one in the list, mm -hmm. so... Um, I don't know which alphabet we're using here right. um, because it, it doesn't look alphabetical. I find um, it interesting that uh, they, some of them aren't violent or I don't know if they are, but like not at all, but right. sure it's kind of a necessary condition for being labeled a terrorist group. Um, so it's more, it's, I think it's less of a, of a terrorist group list and more of a mm. people we don't like uh, or huh. political parties that we don't like list. Um, so sure. I'm not really who made this. Uh, yeah. My, my takeaway from it. Sure. Yeah. That's, uh, that's a good point. Um, yeah. Cause the ones that are listed as nonviolent are my friend, I, I don't know French. I can't even say my French is awful. So uh, Le Bloc Québécois is uh, the other thing. All of these groups appear to be Québécois, but the only one that's not listed as Québécois is Calgarian pro-Canadian, which even though it's from Calgary, which is in Quebec, I believe. Apparently they are representing all of Canada. Um, mm. But the rest are listed as Quebecois. Um, and the, uh, so the only two that aren't listed as violent are the environmental ones, uh, the Le Bloc Quebecois and La Fille de Montcalm. Um, it's like so, the, sons, the sons of Montcalm, I think. I think Fields is either sons. Oh, okay. Sons. Okay, and then there's the sons of Papineau, which is violent. 
and is more separatist than environmental. I, I mean, this one group is both separatist and environmental. So, um, you Looks know, like, and in go ahead. Oh, I was saying there's there's three actually. Uh, Laparty, Quebecois, the one at the bottom as well. Uh, oh, there's... right, right, right. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Um, yeah. If correct me if I'm wrong, but the uh, the assassins of the Fautois Rolands. They're the only ones we really come across in the book, correct? Well, and the and the Hawaiians, but I don't remember the name of the group they belong to. Okay, yes, we will. I think yeah, I don't remember. I do remember that being mentioned. Oh. Yes, they they were uh, known for wearing Hawaiian shirts, which, of course, is maybe a little yeah. funny because. Here in America, there is some separatist group that that's how they are. And I can't remember which goofy group it is, but um, they oh, wear like loud shirts and shit. <laughs> might be. Yeah, it might be the, the Proud Boys or something. I haven't checked my handbook. So, um, yeah, I, I barely pay my membership dues. So it's hard for me to... Uh, to be up on that um so yeah that's uh those are the separatist groups mm -hmm. um and now we move on to the i believe videophony yeah why videophony didn't work mm-hmm and this is a great little section. Um, I know before we went live here, Muhammad, you were talking about um, the book being originally a series of essays, or at least, you know, being designed as such. Um, and I do know for a fact that this was published this section was published as a standalone essay mm. before oh. the book came out um it's just again i think this um the script here the all caps i i just i i don't know what to make of it we've seen quite a bit of it recently here early on in the book this all caps as if it's like a newspaper headline, but I mean, WRY, though in the early days of interlaces, interneted teleputers that operated off largely the same fiber digital grid as the phone companies, the advent of video telephoning, AKA videophony, enjoyed an interval of huge consumer popularity. Callers thrilled at the idea of phone interfacing both orally and faci facially, blah, blah, blah. But this is this is all caps. Mm -hmm. um, I have a theory on this. Yeah, I'd love to hear it. Uh, so I feel like we're kind of seeing this happening right now, where um, especially at the beginning of the internet, there were, you know, I mean, everybody knows what a headline is. 
and then you've got the main article and then like but now we have like have you seen instagram well like probably like 10 years ago news headlines started getting a little bit longer so that they could get clickbaity sure. and, and now like with instagram right like they're giving you this like free preview sort of of the article where they'll give you the entire article like the, all the necessary parts of the article in like two paragraphs despite it being a long form article and it's like you gotta sorry um yes that is loud so yeah, my, my theory is that like he kind of came to the realization that we were headed in this direction and like headlines sort of became those little mini Instagram like whatever, you know. Yeah, that's that's a good point. Um I I am in marketing and that is you know definitely a current SEO best practice is that if you write a long form article, you want to have those bullet points at the top for people like me that aren't going to, aren't going to read an article unless I'm pretty sure that I'm going to need or want to. So you'll see those bullet points that say, you know, this is what this article is about. Um, yeah. So that, is a good point and could certainly be um this is something that just came to me um and, and i don't even know if it makes sense but what if this was like an exam um i don't know why a teacher would write a question in all caps like this but it is a question and answer. I mean, the end of the question, still in all caps, very nearly wiping out the Maryland State Employees Retirement Systems Freddie Mac Fund, a fund whose administrator's mistress's brother had been an almost manically precipitant video phone technology entrepreneur. And, but, so why the abrupt consumer retreat back to good old voice-only telephoning? And then the answer in, you know, standard-ish English. The answer in a kind mm -hmm. of trivalent nutshell is one, emotional stress, two, physical vanity, three, a certain queer kind of self-obliterating logic in the microeconomics of consumer high tech. And then, <clears throat> excuse me, the rest of the answer is kind of laid out, Muhammad. I, I've never been to law school, um, but it, it's kind of laid out like almost like I assume you were kind of talking about here where, you know, the answer is broken up into these one, two, you know, addressing each different thing. Mm. Um, but let, let's talk more about the videophony. So um, obviously, and, you know, we've, we've talked about this, but, you know, since this book was written in the future, we've kind of passed this point in technology, right? Mm -hmm. right. Because we've done this. In fact, we're doing it right now. 
Uh, we are on this Zoom call where we can all see each other. Um, and it is different than a phone call, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't think I'd be naked right now if I weren't on this phone call, but I did, you know, make sure to look at the mirror and, you know, look presentable, even though it's just, just you folks here and you all look great. So, um, I, I'm not going to cast any, uh, guesses, but hopefully you didn't dress up for me, but certainly it does. Um, yeah, I mean, because even though I'm sitting here in my office, in a sense, I'm in public, right? Or at least I'm being seen. Um, and I don't know if this is the first instance of it, but there are many where it's kind of like a double bind, right? You say, well, you know what? we'll just go hypothetical off the board here. Erica is, you know, hundreds of miles away from me. So maybe I've been talking on the phone with Erica and again, pre or the dawn of the internet age and things like that, it was a different world. So let's say Erica and I are phone buddies and, you know, I've asked her, Hey, Erica, what do you look like? And she says, well, I'm a pale white girl, you know, and I'm, and, oh, great. I've got a perfect idea in my head right now. Um, you know, and she says, what do you look like? Jay? Well, I'm a tall white guy. Um, you know, so I can easily see where you would say, man, wouldn't this be friggin' awesome to just be able to pick up the phone and see the person and have a face-to-face -face conversation. Um, and I guess t-shirt for the occasion, you know, <laughs> right. I want to see what shirt Erica's wearing. Um, I don't want her to describe it to me. I want to see it. Um, you know, so it, again, it speaks to, and it might be in uh, Tennis and the Feral Prodigy that, or no, it's in um, Things You Might Learn at the Halfway House, that perversely mm. it's more enjoyable to mm. want something than, than to have it. Mm. Um, and I think that this is, if not the first, it's one of the first in the book in a number of things where you say this technology as is which is friggin wonderful could be just a little bit better and then when you get that you're like fuck man no it, like because you know again to go to the hypothetical you know erica and i are our phone pals for six months and you know, so now we we get this technology and I say, oh, my God, this is going to be awesome. We're going to have this phone call, but I've never seen this chick and she's never seen me. So I better make sure I'm fucking dressed up. Right. And I better make sure I look great. And then, you know, maybe we talk and I say, wow, she's smoking hot. I don't know what she thinks of me, but but now I kind of want to go back to talking. All right. Because, you know, I'm making sure that whatever. 
you know, because we all want to put our best foot forward. Mm. And I guess the social media age has taught us that that's the only foot that we want out there, right? Mm. Nobody goes live on Instagram and say, oh, hold on, you're breaking up with me. Hold, this is going to be awesome. I, I, I got to make sure that I get this live. No, no, they got pictures of your your dinner date and and your sweet dessert and all this bullshit. Um, but it's just snapshots of the best parts of our life that we want to put out there and be judged by. Um, so videophony. Um, so yeah, at the start of videophony, um, and actually I had kind of, we had talked about this the last time when Hal was on the phone with Oren. Uh, mm. It occurred to Hal that although he lied about meaningless details to Oren on the phone, it had never occurred to him to consider whether Oren was ever doing the same thing. This included a spell, this induced a spell of involuted marijuana type thinking that led quickly again to Hal's questioning whether or not he was really all that intelligent. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of that willful uh, suspension of disbelief that, you know, when I'm on the phone with with Hime, um, yeah, I'm sitting here and I'm watching the football game on my phone over here. And, you know, I might be writing out a dinner grocery list and, you know, in three or four other things. But I fully anticipate that Hime is paying full attention to the nice. to the brilliant things coming out of my mouth, um, which videophony made impossible because we can see what's happening and maybe more importantly it prevented us from doing that right when when they were on a video call at least in the beginning they did have to give their full attention um and I, let's see uh and good old traditional audio only phone conversations allowed you to presume that the person on the other end was paying complete attention to you mm. while also permitting you not to have to pay anything even close to complete mm. attention to her. And then kind of as a summation here, uh, the narrator says, the whole attention business was monstrously stressful, video callers found. Um, so, uh, so yeah, the, in the, the videophony, um, they have the video calls. So can, does someone want to explain the evolution of video calling here? Oh. Go for it, Hime. <laughs> that's that's hard so then so right so then so people started so they they realized that this idea was not really good so then they decided i'm not going to do a good job here but then so then people decide not so companies decided to to start selling this mask first i don't remember the word first mask yep and then this cut out 
pictures that make you um, look like really perfect. And then they started advertising uh, the images of celebrities that people could buy. So I don't know. I'm not, I knew I said that I'm not going to do a good job here, but I think that's what I remember at least, which makes total sense to me. This, is, yeah. this section here is brilliant. It's so good. Yeah. It's, um, it, it's almost like tiptoeing toward the absurd, right? Right. Um, and it is, it, it, it seems at least to be driven by business. Uh, right. but there's some sort of revealing lesson here in the beyond short-term viability curve of advances in consumer technology. <laughs> the career of videophony conforms neatly to this curve's classically annular shape. First, there's some sort of terrific sci-fi-like advance in consumer tech, like from oral to video phoning, which advance always, however, has certain unforeseen disadvantages for the consumer. And then, but mm. the market niches created by those disadvantages, like people's stressfully vain repulsion at their own videophonic appearance are ingeniously filled by a sheer entrepreneurial verve. And yet the very advantages of these ingenious disadvantage compensations seem all too often to undercut the original high-tech advance. <coughs> Excuse me. Resulting in consumer recidivism and curve closure and massive shirt loss for precipitant investors. Um, so in English, mm -hmm. um, basically the people saw the oral only phone conversations as limiting, right? I'm talking to Erica halfway across the country, but all I know is her voice and what she's telling me, um, so the desire is for a more genuine human mm. connection, um, something more, something more closely aligned with an introduction or an actual human connection. Um, so those were the things that led to the advance to the video phone. So this is going to be awesome. We're going to have video phones. So it's like I'm going to meet this person in person because mm -hmm. I mm -hmm. see them when I'm talking. I see them when they're listening, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. In the long mm -hmm. run, what it did was the exact opposite. Mm -hmm. um, so, yes, uh, I, I believe the first thing that they did was, uh, yeah, the masks. So mm -hmm. it sounds like you would maybe send in five or six pictures that you really like. Hey, these are five or six great pictures of me where I think I look great. And the company would take those pictures and make like uh, a composite and then make a mask that you I can't remember if you would wear or just hang or whatever. Um, so that was the small step away toward the personal connection. Hey, Jack, how are you? 
We're talking good, about good video phones. Um, so yeah, Jack, we were just saying the, uh, the video phone was born of the desire to have a more human connection with someone than just, you know, the oral only phone. And the, the irony of it was that because of the video phone, we had even less human connection because we didn't want to get dialed up to take a call from mom to say, Oh, I just wanted to see if you saw that that basketball game last night or whatever. Um, I've always appreciated the David Foster Wallace beat all of the douchebags I was in zoom meetings with to their jokes. <laughs> he made yes. the jokes before they got to get to him. So I always appreciated that. Yes. I mean, he doesn't have, he wasn't able to anticipate the mute antics. That would have been the only, that's right. You yeah. know, the only other great thing. Was that you know? in the one twenty somewhere? Uh, page. Yeah. 140. Oh yeah. Okay. I got it. Yeah. There's that, there's that long intro, that very unique intro on 144. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. That's yeah. We were talking about, yeah. The all caps thing. Um, so most of them have headings like that, but very few are nearly like that. Yeah. Yeah. Any yeah. ideas on that, Jack? We, um, we threw around a couple, um, but love. No. And, and one of the things he didn't anticipate about video phones is you can't, deal with your newborn which is why i was a little bit late so sorry about that no but i actually thought about the same thing and i couldn't figure i couldn't figure it out and i thought maybe i'll maybe i'll think about it again later in the book and i'll recall or, or have some sort of a revelation all right yeah the, the one thing that i came up with and it was right here and it doesn't fully make sense is a, as if maybe it were a question on a test but I don't know why someone would write a question in all caps. Um, was but. it was it last was in the last reading where we got to read one of Hal's like class essays or something like yep. that? Which yep. first of all was really funny because while I was reading that I realized David Foster Wallace gave himself a B plus on his own essay. <laughs> uh, through the eyes of whoever it was that was grading him, which is also funny because he was a teacher, like he taught writing. Yeah. So was he right? Was he was he writing as a B plus student, or was the teacher being really? I wouldn't know. I'm not as good a writer as him, but um, yeah. But I, was, I imagine that Wallace wouldn't ever give himself anything better than a B plus. <laughs> yeah. No, really. Um, but no, in regards to like the, I forgot where I was going with this, but yeah, as regards to like it being a. a a essay or like a question mm -hmm. um i was also thinking about i think there was a big header that led up to that i could be wrong though um yeah there no there definitely right. was yeah. a, a smaller header uh hale's first oh yeah here writing it's, it's, about entertainment or something yeah it still takes up like a good chunk and yeah it's all there like you that. go yeah so maybe we'll yeah still um 
so yeah, there are some some great little parts in here. Um, just asides that are so spot on mm-hmm. and hysterical. Um, adjusting the old units angle of repose in your shorts and actually seeing your videophonic interfacee idly strip a shoelace of its gumlet as she talked to you and suddenly realizing your whole infantile fantasy of commanding your partner's attention while you yourself got to fugue doodle and make little genital adjustments was diluted and insupportable in that you were actually commanding not one bit more attention than you were paying. Um, the whole attention business was monstrously stressful, video callers found. Um, so, uh, yeah, they. Um, this is pretty funny. The respondents, almost 60% of respondents who receive visual access to their own faces, specifically use the terms untrustworthy, unlikable, or hard to like in describing their own visage's appearance with a phenomenally ominous 71% of senior citizens respondents specifically comparing their video faces to that of Richard Nixon during the Nixon Kennedy Mm. debates of 1960. Um, which I believe is where we are going shortly. That is to the year 1960. Um, And it's at least worth pointing out, if not surprising, that they're not talking, people aren't, maybe they're not even focused on the person they're talking to. They're focusing on themselves. So again, back to our hypothetical, me and Erica are on the phone and we get on the phone and we get on the video call and both of us get off the video call. And at least in terms of the book, we don't get off that video call with me saying, wow, Erica's a great looking gal and blah, blah, blah. No, we get off that call and I say, oh my God, why did I put that in my hair? Why didn't I do this? I should have sat further back. Um, So again, part of that double bind where what we're trying to do is find more connection, what we end up, what technology ends up making us do or what we end up doing is focusing more on ourselves and our perceived shortcomings, Um, which you know, is kind of par for the course with this book, I think. Um, But then, of course, the ultimate end to this is the tableau, right? Where it is just, Hmm. it's not even us, you know, where where Hmm. I say, well, you know what? People have told me I look like Liam Neeson and he's kind of a famous actor, so... I'm going to get a tableau of Liam Neeson, but, you know, I'm going to do, I'm going to put a Grateful Dead shirt on him. So it personalizes it a little bit, Um, but it's not me. It's Liam Neeson with my fucking t-shirt on. Um, So that is kind of the arc of videophony. Um, And it, kind of to to break it down 
first there's some sort of oh okay we already read the uh, yeah the consumer um how you, you know and, and this may be something you know is business and advertising is it reacting to these trends and is it reacting to demand or is it creating demand and creating these insecurities and trends? That's such a good question. I think it went, reading this section made me think about that. I think to me, it's both. I think in uh, the way it's the way I understood this and the way I, I see things happening today, I think it's I think it's both the fact that here I don't I don't know if I'm remembering correctly, but there's there's a part where he describes so companies are advertising these masks and then if you buy a mask you can also get a hook they would sell you the hook where yes. you can so they making so companies right advertising I guess this world is is what they are about right making our lives easier they know this is what we need but at the same time they're really good at creating the needs for us. So it all becomes this illusion. I think the word illusion is also present in many parts in this section, which I think it's, again, it's just brilliant. Yeah. And kind, kind of Orwellian, um, the, huh. you know, the, the double speak starts yeah. almost at the same time. Um, Cause it, Optimistically misrepresentational masking or OMM. Um, so, you know, the technology changes, there's these inventions, and then there's these words we come up with to soften the blow, I guess, you know, huh. instead of saying fucking liar or whatever. Um, yeah, we have op op optimistic misrepresentational masking or <laughs> OMM. Um, so good. And, yeah. And, and then how long then could one expect it to have been before the relentless entrepreneurial drive toward an ever better mousetrap conceived of the transmittable tableau, a.k.a. TT? And yeah, the the ever better mousetrap is is just such mm. a, a great mm. analogy um, mm. that that really speaks to a lot of what is happening today. I feel like, um, yeah, you know, where we we talk about these inventions, like. Let's say the difference between a conventional oven and a microwave oven, where a conventional oven, what, a baked potato takes an hour in a microwave, you can cook it in eight minutes or something like that. So, so we'll say it's 10%. You're saving yourself a lot of time. Um, but it seems like, and I'm sure this happens in the book, but it seems like in real life, you notice it more where it's like, hold on, I just did this software upgrade, or I just bought this new product, or I just upgraded this. And what it yielded was a, a 
increase mm. in productivity or something, which at a grand scale, if I'm IBM and I can get my workers to be 2% more productive because of something, that's huge. In my, for me, it's nothing. Like, you know, spending time to, spending time or money to do something. It'd be like spending $500 on a robot that makes my bed. Well, that's great because I don't have to make my bed, right? But how long does it take me to make my bed every day? Uh, five minutes if I'm really confused. Um, so it's, again, the one of my favorite lines in the book, um, it does what every successful ad campaign does. It creates an anxiety mm -hmm. relievable mm -hmm. only by purchase. Um, so there yeah. is this little problem, right, that we all probably recognize. Like, oh, man, I wish I wasn't whatever, you know? And then, but the fix is something that is very disproportionate, um, you know, in terms of the time saved. Um, you know, I mean, just think of the videophony. Fuck, my phone rings. I've got to ignore the phone because there's no way I'm answering it looking like this. Mm -hmm. So now I've got to go get dressed. Maybe I got to take a quick shower. I got to do my hair. I've got to check my background. I've got to check this. I've got to check. Now I'm ready to call the person back. And I call the person back and they're not there because it was 45 minutes ago that they called me to ask what channel the game was on. You know, so... Again, it's just a huge clusterfuck trying to improve upon something that maybe in the grand scheme of things just did not need to be mm. improved upon. Um, because when we look at it, having a telephone, having a telephone conversation with someone was at one point, I mean, think about the leap in technology just from going from no telephone to a telephone um you know the leap there is exponentially larger than it is going from a voice phone to a video phone i feel like mm, um yeah. absolutely so um this this also reminds me, even though this reminds me of what he was uh, one of the points he was making, and this is this is water. Even though it seems that this is water came many years later, um, we find so many references here in infinite in infinite jest that we find in in his speech from this is water when when he says worship he's talking about worshiping and he says worship beauty which i think this is one of the points in this section worship beauty and you will always think that you're ugly or so i'm paraphrasing yep, obviously yep. I don't no, I, I think, so yeah that's exactly what he's describing that 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 reality that humanness that he's describing so real um it's he's talking about it again in in, in this is water i almost yeah. feel like i can hear morass listening to the conversation and saying this is what i've been trying to say about where you're huh. coming from you know huh. this is what i'm trying to explain it's huh. not right you're worried about the wrong shit yeah uh, yeah 
Yeah. No, I, I think, I think you're right on the money. I think that's definitely what's going on here. And I do, yeah. this is why I, I do really like the Marath and Steeply sections. Cause I especially feel like as I come back through the book, I listen to these conversations and then I go through these scenes and I feel it interacting, you know, in my mind. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I agree. Um, and yeah. And then it's funny cause it kind of wraps up here with, uh, a kind of status that, that, that number three i always like that line uh that's uh it's, it's just after the the three but there's some yep. sort of reveal i always like that line yes yes we talked about that actually oh. just before yeah i love that line too um i think it's a nice little synopsis right and then um you know, at the end, it, and of course, but these advantages were nothing other than the once lost and now appreciated advantages of good old Bell era blind oral only telephoning. Mm. Um, so in the end, they did what we very seldom do is kind of take a step back in technology as uh someone says in the ennet house coming up uh does this strike you as a bit retrograde um you know that we have this better technology available to us and we don't want it we want to go back to a lesser technology mm. um and it, it's funny here where he says that uh so people went back to the, the oral only phone as kind of a status symbol, you know, yeah. like I'm not, I'm not one of these Instagram models, you know, I don't, mm. you know, I don't need to show you how good looking I am, you know, let's just chat. Mm. Um, and so in other words, a return to oral only telephony became at the closed curves end a kind of status symbol of anti-vanity such that only callers utterly lacking in self-awareness continued to use videophony and tableau to say nothing of masks. In these tacky facsimile using people became ironic cultural symbols of tacky vein slavery to corporate PR and high-tech novelty, uh, became the subsidized era's tacky equivalents of people with leisure suits, black velvet paintings, sweater vests for their poodles, et cetera, et cetera. I love that part. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Year, 20, like beginning of last year, there was an art. There were articles coming out about how like celebrities and models were going back to wired headphones, um, and like it wasn't just they weren't just saying this like oh they're more functional because they don't run out of battery. No, they're like this is a fashion statement that they're making, and I'm like that's cool and all, but like I actually get a lot. Of, I, I prefer the wireless ones. Like <laughs> sure, and it's like. But like by saying that, I'm I'm also not being vain because it's not about like again, it's not about the functionality, it's about the image of it all, you know. And I think the same can be said even with video calling. Like as much as as right as he is about all of that, for certain people, and I mean to select few, I do like FaceTime more. There are people I would rather talk on the phone with, and there are people I would rather FaceTime with because mm -hmm. 
mm. of what they can bring like in terms of their facial expression or whatever mm. uh, to a call right. or their outfit yeah but it's just yeah. it's like we, we haven't just gotten up to the video i think we're i think we're past that where and like there, there's also the trend now of like using flip phones like you see celebrities now where they're like mm. I'm too busy. Like I can't be distracted by having all the information in the history of the world in my pocket. I need a flip phone. <laughs> That's how I get yeah. fun at the end of the day. So. Yeah. I mean, just think of it was, you know, and this sort of cycle keeps happening, but for a while, the object was to have the biggest television possible, right? And not very long after, it was to have the smallest television possible so that you can take it everywhere, mm. right? I, I'm out grocery shopping and I can pull up the TV on my phone. Um, so yeah, there's that part of both sides of it where you want the grandiose type of thing, but you also need the convenience or want the convenience mm of putting it in your pocket. I think about when you go into a fancy coffee shop and they, they only do pour overs, you know, they don't use any machines. They're like, no, the fanciest way is just to heat up water and put it in this little funnel. It, that's, that's funny to me, you know, rather than yeah. the big machines that you might expect mm. in a coffee shop. Sure. And people yep. do that at home too, right? They've got the, the Keurig that they bought four years ago at Christmas and now they've got like the electric kettle and they're just doing it old school. Yeah. Yep. All right. So, um, videophony, any last thoughts on videophony and, or the rise or fall thereof? I know I'm going to have like a thousand when this, when this call is over. That's of course. Yeah. That's this is one of those sections where I'm like, I'm going to think about this at least 10 more times in the next couple of months. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Um, so we will move on to Mr. Michael Matthew Pemulus, nobody's fool, right? Mm -hmm. um, selling pee. So four times per annum in these chemically troubled times. I don't really, un I mean, I don't, it seems odd to me to put that in the introductory sentence here in these chemically troubled times is there something that makes these times more chemically troubled than another um, it may be after this but we didn't go too far past that uh, line about if somebody rubs you the, the wrong way you put something in his water bottle was that that's before this just before this yes. right Yep. Yeah. So, you know, there's some chemical trouble, right? And it could be, I don't think it, I don't think it, I don't recall it happening, but it could even be like, oh, I threw a little dreams in his bottle to make him test hot and he didn't know about it, you know? Sure. Um, yeah. I think I was, so, thinking, I think you and I were thinking of other chemically troubles, but we, we did even just have this other one. Yeah. That. So, so it could just be kind of, an observation, right? Not not even saying, not saying cause and effect, but just it, it's not that these guys are here four times a year because these times are chemically troubled. But you know, 
it, it's just one, you know, the two coincide rather than being cause and effect. Mm, mm. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, um, yeah. So this and, and this is something that, again, in terms of business and marketing and advertising and things, I mean, this is the ultimate dream, right? I always use the example. Um, I don't know if you guys remember like radar detectors that people used to have that would it, it would scan for frequencies that police would use with the speed gun. Um, and when they detected that, they would set off an alarm so that you, the driver of a car, would know, oh, shit, there's a cop somewhere around. Mm. And it was very funny because the cops would say, well, fuck, um, I'm being um, sarcastic here, but the cops would say, fuck, we need to keep these roads more safe. So we can't have these drivers know that we're trying to keep them safe. We need to come up with a new radar gun that they can't detect so that we can keep them safer. So they would go to a company and say, hey, we need, you know, a gun that uses a different frequency, that uses a different technology or whatever. Um, and that company would make the, the cops new radar guns. And the same company would turn around and create the radar, the, the radar detector that they would sell. So they're really selling both products, which has to be the dream of any company. Like I've always said, if I were to design a cough medicine, it would, when you, you took it, your cough would go away for exactly three hours before coming back twice as bad as you had it before so that you would take more medicine to stop coughing for three hours. Um, and so that's exactly what Pemulus is doing here, right? He's selling the drugs and he's selling the clean urine so that you mm. pass the drug test, um, ultimately helping him stay in business as a drug dealer. Mm -hmm. Because if, as it says in the text, what, 50 or 75% of the students over 15 couldn't pass a drug test. Um, so obviously, yeah, uh, probably about 25% of the ranking players over 15 can't pass a drug test. Okay, so I gotta imagine that if these guys rolled in and a quarter of the players are ruled ineligible because they're high, you know, because they test positive for drugs, that is not going to go very well for anyone, right? Let alone Pemulus, who's trying to sell drugs. Mm -hmm. um, so who else? So obviously Pemulus stands to gain from these players passing their drug tests. Who else stands to gain from these players passing their drug tests? ETA, of course. ETA. Yeah. And it was mentioned earlier 
in the professional conversationalist scene, I believe that the administration has been dosing of sorts, at least the incandenses, right? right. <clears throat> like at least Hal and Oren, they've been feeding them some sort of steroidal mix. Um, so yeah, the administration at ETA has a lot to gain by making sure that these guys don't fail their drug test. Um, I'm not saying right now that they are working with Pemulus mm -mm. to make sure that these fuckers have clean pee, but they should be, right? I mean, don't don't you think that if they're not working with Pemulus, because I, I think we've already seen that you they can either, if they have something to gain, the ETA administrators, they have something to gain from their players not testing positive for drugs. They can put their attention and resources on the prevention part of it, which frankly, I don't see. I don't see a real tight anti-drug atmosphere here. No. Um, and is there, a, is there a line that says something along the lines of like the headmaster and the prorectors are aware that there's some drug usage, right? Okay, yeah. I, I believe so. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the prorectors, like I think we've we've talked about before. If those guys aren't getting high, get the fuck out of here. They, like, if the they're not getting high, they're not doing it right. Out, definitely. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. He's coaching these 11-year-olds. He's got to get something, right? Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah. So if the emphasis is not on the prevention, I think we can agree it's not, then it has to be on the back end, making sure that detection uh, does not happen. Right. Um, if they're not working with him. They're certainly not standing in his way. So, right. Um, because I mean, they're not undercover. The fucking guy's got a, right. a, a thing from Fenway, you know, making change. And he, he's dressed up like, like a beer hawk at the baseball game selling pee. Um, so, Again, I, I don't know whether he is, uh, you know, tacitly allowed to be doing this, um, but he is certainly making no effort to hide his selling of the clean pee. Okay. Um, so what else do we have happen? This is kind of a, a weird little section, right? Because it does bounce around quite a bit. Um, you know, talking about Pemulus, uh, talks a little bit about Mario. Um, I did notice this part tomorrow morning, ETA custodial workers, Kankel and Brant or Dave fall down very hard. The well-loved old janitor laid off from Boston college for contracting narcolepsy, blah, 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 blah. Um, so, um, 
There's so what a else section do we... on 154 about Avril and Pemulus's relationship that's kind of interesting. Yeah. If I'm jumping ahead, that then no, no, that. not at all. Go, uh, go right ahead. Let's let's talk about that. Yeah, on, on one fifty. Well, you know, uh, Pemulus and Avril are going to have some Im- important interactions later in the book, and I don't recall many sections about their relationship. But on one fifty four, I think the paragraph starts MM Pemulus. Yeah, uh, it's got footnote fifty four in there, but uh, essentially it gets uh, all the way down to uh, eventually. Avril likes to say within Mario's hearing, he's like a fish in brine. Then Pemulus mm-hmm. is giving Mario, who's a film knight, it kind of goes on. This is a really interesting window into Avril and Pemulus's relationship that I think I've I've forgotten about. And it just kind of stuck out to me this time. And I think it, it reflects on that later interaction the two of them have in a really interesting way that Pemulus cares for Mario in this way that she's aware of. Yep. Yep. Great point. Um, yeah. Uh, Pemulus is here on scholarship, right? He's at ETA on scholarship. Um, he has the James O. Incandenza scholarship, of which there is only one. Um, his scholarship is the coveted James O. Incandenza Geometrical Optics Scholarship, of which there is only one, and which each term Pemulus manages to avoid losing by just one dentodermal layer of overall GPA, and which gives him sanctioned access to all the late director's lenses and equipment, some of which turn out to be useful to unrelated enterprises. What the fuck is that? Like it that line just really sticks out to me because it's it's almost like like a a wink wink nudge nudge when it's not necessary. Um I'll give a really, really off-color example of what I mean. I found this meme once, and I thought it was hysterical. It was this super cute blonde chick, and the meme says, what's the difference between a joke and three dicks? And the answer is, I can't take a joke. Um, And I had sent it, and long story short, a bartender friend of mine, this little cute thing, one day she busts that out to some guys at the bar. She's like, hold on, guys. I, I, I'm going to get this right. Um, what's the difference between a, a joke and three dicks? And I, I don't know. She's like, I can't take a joke. Do you get it? Um, and that's that's what this really strikes me as. Like, Pemulus can use all of this shit, which could be useful for other things. Um, like, of course it could but what specifically um you know it 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 doesn't exactly say but it's also pretty obvious that pamulus is going to use anything and everything he can get his hands on to design a better mousetrap right so so yeah pamulus has access to all of himself's equipment, um, which 
some of it he used for, you know, to help Mario with his films. Um, some of it he probably used for other stuff. Um, you know, I, I, I've mentioned this before. I think Pemulus is a lot more important to the plot than at first light, maybe. Um, couple other things I noticed here. Friendship at ETA is non-negotiable currency. Um, and I think Hal talked about this with the big buddies. There's little buddies, mm -hmm. right? Hey, I've, we all know where we stand. You know, if I've got a match with you today, we both know that whoever wins this match is going to you know, move on to whatever. And whoever loses this match is going to not move on to whatever. But after the match, you're still my roommate or whatever. Um, so I, I think that that isn't, you know, kind of a, a different way of saying that same thing. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then the other so Oren Marion Hal's late father was revered as a genius in his original profession without anybody ever realizing what he really turned out to be a genius at, even he himself, at least not while he was alive, which is perhaps bona fidely tragic, but also, as far as Mario's concerned, ultimately all right, if that's the way things unfolded. Um, so, so yeah, himself had multiple careers, uh, multiple successful careers. Um, and again, so, this, yep. Sorry. Thank you. So what is that, that he, that himself really turned out to be a genius at that nobody realized? I don't know. What do you think? What was that I, I technology he sold point. to the defense company? He sold something to defense and made a ton of money. I forget what it was. Yeah, that was his Some kind of lens, I think, right? Yeah, it was an optic thing. The best way that I can understand it is he said, um, it is said that uh, rear view mirror companies. So you know how the mirrors say objects in mirror are closer than they appear or mm -hmm. whatever. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like some sort of, whether it's a coating for the lens or something that you can do to a lens that makes objects appear closer. Um, a lot. Tavis is described as this, right? Tavis is described in exactly these words that when he moves towards you it appears that he's going further away or something something along those lines so yeah that ostensibly is his first career that by anyone's calculation he was a success at right so that's it well, I mean, that was his first career, but then his second career was as an ETA founder and administrator, and then it was as a filmmaker. 
And mm-hmm. ultimately, um, so without anybody ever realizing what he really turned out to be a genius at, even he himself, at least not while he was alive. So that could be talking about the entertainment, right? Creating an entertainment that is lethally addictive could be what he was ultimately a genius at. Is um, Sorry, it's been a while since we've been on, or at least we bounced around between himself and James so many times. Is James himself? And then yes. who is the father of James? I know we're getting into him the next Same time. thing. Mm-hmm. Just, to, just to keep it simple. Okay, cool. Yep. Sure. Yes. Um, yeah, so that is, I think, what mm. that means, which again brings up the question of who is narrating this section that is pretty close to an omniscient type narrator with both foresight and hindsight. Mm. So, um, so yeah, this chapter is really all over the place, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Mario and Pemulus are boys. That is, yeah. Avril, um, you know, gets in on it. Uh, I, I looked this up, but couldn't find it. Asking Mario if he knows what you call three Canadians copulating on a snowmobile. I figured that must have been an actual joke, but I couldn't find it online. Um, so now, um, yeah, Hal. So we talk about Hal. For a long time, he identified himself as a lexical prodigy. Uh, but now he's making really, really big strides in his tennis game. Um, and it's it's unusual because it's a post-pubescent plateau hopping, as he says. Um, because obviously, you know, probably the first big jump in improvement comes, you know, at that pubescent stage where a boy turns into a man, right? And and there's a growth spurt and there's all sorts of chemical shit happening. And you would fully expect that that's when someone academically or uh, athletically either takes a huge leap forward or says, hold on, I can do what with my dick? Fuck tennis. Yeah, I'm not. No, I'm not playing tennis anymore. So it it would seem like that is where you would expect one or or the other to happen. But what what they're saying here is, no, this is well past that. Hell knew what his dick did, you know, years ago. And he still wanted to play tennis. But now he's gotten even better, Um, which is unusual timing. Uh, So he's judged fourth best tennis player under age 18 in the U.S., sixth best on the continent, and he's keeping keeping his head, they they point out, right? So so then maybe it makes sense when um, when in the first 
at the beginning of the book, the first scene when we see that, when we see that that Hal is being manipulated by his uncle and everybody in the office is like he doesn't have, clearly he doesn't have a voice. He doesn't have an identity. He's like empty and everybody around him tries to make decisions for him or come up with answers. So it's like he's in the room, but nobody is there. And it's we see that here, right? Hal is now being encouraged to identify himself as a prodigy and genius artist. So it's like it's somebody else is making doing this for him, which is I don't know. It sounds to me like this. Oh, this is the beginning of the end. So now it makes sense why Hal ends up the way he does. And it's super sad that this happens to him. He doesn't have a sense of identity or self or. Sure. Seems. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I would agree with that. We We certainly don't know much about Hal in terms of what, he enjoys doing we just know what he does um mm. so yeah i i think it's interesting and we had talked about this before we went live here uh, about the repetition so mm. it, it, this paragraph so paragraph there's the one paragraph that we talked about that starts with mm pemulus then we have this paragraph, Michael Pemulus, wiry, pointy, featured, et cetera, et cetera. Then the next paragraph, M.M. Pemulus, whose middle name is Matthew, sick, blah, blah, blah. The next paragraph starts, Hal and Condensa, Hal, if Hal. And then we have Michael Pemulus's basic posture with people is that Mrs. Pemulus raised no dewy-eyed fools. The very next paragraph, Michael Pemulus is nobody's fool. Mm. Um, Again. So that is curious um, there. Because, you know, the first one, you know, Pemulus's posture is that his mom raised no fools. And the next one is just that you know, not only did she raise no fools, she must have done it right because he is nobody's fool. Um, Can I jump so in yeah. and say something before I Please. forget? When we were talking about, um, let's see, uh, that like basically he didn't have an identity. It's just what other people are feeding into, you know, here, you will identify yourself as a prodigy, late blooming prodigy or whatever. And um, kind of relates back to what we were saying about um, like the cause and effect of, you know, do we really need this? Well, society says I need it. So I guess, you know, mm, the machine, yeah. like, like what came first, the chicken or the egg, you know, it just goes into a cycle. Like, um, yeah, well, society says I need this. I guess I do need it. Well, I need this because I need that part. And so I'm going to get this extra thing, the hook for the mask. And I feel like it's kind of reflected there with, um, Zima, how you're saying, you know, that Hal is just there. He doesn't really have a voice. It's, you know, you're a prodigy here. We'll all speak for you. We're here for you. And they, you know, perpetrate like they're supporting him kind of the same way society does with all these things. It mm -hmm. tells us we need to be better and prettier and more entertaining or whatever, you know, all the social media crap. I don't know. I kind of feel like it's the same mm -hmm. yeah. with him. I, it's just random yeah. thought I had that. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. It's a great one. It's a great point. It is. 
who is he really? Is he what the people say he is? Or, you know, or is he just that because they tell him he is, you know? Right. Is he the tableau? Right. Is he the screen right. that, that that is being projected upon? Or mm -hmm. is he the figurant who is creating the movie? Um, mm. Yeah, I, I, I mm. think great points. That's really good. I already go off on that tangent. But yeah, it was just something I was thinking about when I was rereading it. I'm like, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm glad you did. So, um, yeah. So moving on here. So uh, where there was mentioned before of the 1960 Kennedy Nixon debate. Now we travel to 1960 um, with Jim. So this scene is Hal's father, Jim, as a 10 year old with his father so Hal's grandfather mm. and Hal's father in 1960. Um, I didn't realize that it was 1960 and that they yeah talked about how there was an affliction where people were only seeing 1960s Reagan or something like was I forgot how that worked exactly but with the telephonics um is that what we're referring back to when you when you mentioned um, during the uh, in the in the videophony section um, where they they had done some surveys or whatever of people who used videophony, um, seventy one percent of senior citizens specifically referenced the Kennedy Nixon debates of nineteen sixty to explain how they thought they looked um which is I to thought, say yeah, sweaty and bloated <laughs> yeah that that line just like stood out to me when i was reading now it's just like is he is he is he speaking figuratively because like everything up to this point has been so technical and like in this section specifically and then for them to jump to 1960 uh it just seems more than a coincidence. Um, I agree. Yeah. I, I would agree. Um, but yes, so here we are in the garage with Jim and Jim. What do we make of this? All of these scenes are so fucking painful, aren't they? It is. Seriously. That's a good word. It is super painful. It's so sad. Yeah. And just the writing. Holy, sh you talk about um, words per page. I would challenge anyone to fit more words on a page than these sections. Oh, you mean um, that's, that's what you mean by painful? Like it's painful to read, it's hard to read? I, or, I think or that the two are related. Okay. I, I, you know, in like, like I've said, I, I could probably be drawn and quartered for comparing this to poetry. But I mean, those are tools that are used in poetry. Um, so essentially, the, as, a, as a means of like, because it's, it's a sad chapter. Are you saying that like, in order to inflict pain upon the reader, he had to write yeah. in super long, drawn out paragraphs um, to like okay. actually cause physical physical harm to us but like that's that's amazing i never really considered uh that as a literary device uh, yeah i think i think it absolutely is 
Um, you know, Wallace I mean, himself they, referred to the book as a song. We were talking about it before the uh, before the call. You know that uh, the way it ends, like he, you know, if people are like, "Well, there was no ending," and he's like, "You know, if you felt that way, well, you know, that's not what was intended." You know, the, he said like the flow of it that it was like a song, mm-hmm. the rhythm of it. You know, the way it that's ended a, was how the yeah. song should end, and I kind of feel like that's the tactic he takes throughout the book. You know, it, it's almost like a soundtrack. You know, what the way it's written should correspond with like what's going on in that scene. If it's painful, yeah, then maybe it should be harder to read or, you know. Right. Uh, Because I mean, we as readers, educated readers, we know that a paragraph is going to contain maybe not a succinct idea, but, but it's mostly going to cover one topic. So when we look at a page long paragraph, we right. may say to ourselves, you know what? I got the general gist of this paragraph. I'm going to go to the next one, um, which, you know, let, let's think about young Jim here, 10 year old Jim. Don't you think Jim would have fucking loved to skip this chapter if he could? Yeah. But he <laughs> couldn't. Um, so, you know, as we make our way through it slowly and painfully um Hmm. anything here jump out at you guys um in terms of what is being said and what is being done in this scene well just again off that last point the writing style is like you were, well, what you were talking about is why is he like listing the names, the patterns between before every single, that's not what's happening in this chapter at all. And it kind of just feels like he's flexing on us right now. Like watch me totally change the key of this song in the uh-huh. middle sure. of the book. Uh-huh. Like, and he goes from like hardcore prescriptivism, which is what he was, he's mentioned several times throughout the book and he's written essays on the difference between prescriptivism and descriptive and descriptivism uh, as writing styles um the previous chapter it's like almost legal writing where it's like this is the party this is what they did this is party number two this is what they did and then in this one it's like raw feelings from the perspective of a 10 year old who has never heard the word prescriptivism before and has no choice but to speak in a descriptive pattern and you know later i don't know who who's like who's i know it's i mean it's got to be from young 10 year old Jim's like point of view mm. it, I feel like I feel smaller when I'm listening to this almost like I'm, I'm that 10 year old and like there have been parts of this where I'm like wow like I've seen my father be harsh and then and then soft like right afterwards and and like mm. trying not to make the same mistakes as my father it's just yeah he's he's just he's a good writer I don't know what else to say that but <laughs> A lot comes out of me in this chapter, yeah. And Mm. I noticed this chapter, it reads a lot like a theater script or like a movie script where everything is described. Shakespeare did this a lot where they didn't have stage direction in the play, so he would actually put it in the play, Shakespeare would. You know, something like, why are you walking away from me while I'm talking to you? Well, the reason that's in the script is so the actor knows that he's supposed to be walking away. 
and you have, you know, right at the beginning, that's no way to treat a garage door bending stiffly down at the waist and yanking at the handles. So the door jerks up and out jerky. And, you know, so, so it's describing the action that is happening without saying young Jim bent stiffly down at the waist and mm, yanked at the handle uh, of the garage door. Mm. Um, and again, there's no quotes here. It, it's, seems pretty obvious that this is Jim's father talking, but there are no quotes. Um, so, so yeah, there's some talk about Jim's grandmother. Ever see your mom with a broiler door? It's carnage, Jim. It's cringe to see it. And the poor dumb thing thinks it's tribute to the slouching slob type she loved as he roared by. Um, so, yeah, there's the part about Marlon Brando. He really doesn't like Marlon Brando. Um, Marlon Brando probably fucked Hal's grandma. Spoiler alert. Um, so, uh, so, yeah, he's t- talking to himself. Because remember, in we had seen one section where himself had said that his father's goal was to create a tennis player, right? Mm -hmm. Right. And here, and we had talked about this in terms of the Sarpinski gasket type of thing where you have one thing and then you have, you know, kind of a smaller thing and then a smaller thing. Well, it's mentioned by himself that himself's father tried to create a tennis player. And here we have himself's father saying, I'm going to create a tennis player. You are going to be a great tennis player. I was near great. You will be truly great. You will be the real thing. Um, so, uh, and then there's, you know, the part about, you know, they're, they're living right now in a glorified trailer park and they're moving back to California so that himself's father can give his true talent or what he thinks is his true calling his last best effort, um, which is, you know, to be an actor, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So what do you think of the dynamic between the two? Seems pretty one-sided. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I wrote I wrote down here abuse. It's like it sounds abusive the way he talks to his son, like that way. No, Jim, Jimbo, no, not that way. I'm just oh, don't start crying, and I'm gonna t- I'll tell you what to do. And this is it's like he's another object for him. He describes he says it's so important to treat objects in a certain yeah. way and this is what i'm going to do with you because that's what you are an object and i can do with you what i want and so it sounds yeah so he's right he's apologetic for it at the same time well he's uh, drunk he's fucking okay. hammered yeah <laughs> but i've seen i've seen i've seen this on in, in like sober parents as well where it's like there's this uh there's this constant battle between like their natural proclivity, like their nat, like just their natural upbringing, and then wanting to be better than your father, sort mm-hmm. of thing. Where as you're raising your child, you're constantly comparing yourself to 
your parents and how and then you'll you'll notice it halfway through like you'll suddenly hear the way that your father talked as you're talking to somebody else or you'll hear the way your mother used to say a certain thing and then every single time it's like a stop and think of like oh shit am I, am I doing this right like this this whole life thing like is this right you start second guessing yourself yeah yeah <laughs> yep uh and there's the bit about potential right um I, th there was a football coach years ago and he says yeah kid they say you got a lot of potential your potential is going to get me fired and, and and it always stuck with me because potential is nothing right um yeah i mean since since we're on blue sunday um a kid comes home from school and as his dad says, Hey, how was school? He said, it was great. He said, but, um, the teacher's trying to tell us my homework is, is to understand the difference between potential and reality. And I just don't get it. He's like, Oh, um, go ask your sister. if She'd sleep with Justin Bieber for a million dollars. And he comes back. She said, yep, sure would. All right, go, go ask your mom if she'd sleep with Brad Pitt for a million dollars. He comes back. Oh, yeah, twice. He's all right. He's, but what is this supposed to be teaching me? He says, well, potentially we're millionaires. But in reality, we live with a bunch of sluts. Um, <laughs> so, so potential is something that someone sees <clears throat> in and of itself. It's nothing. Potential is an idea. But for some reason we manifest it and use that potential as if it is a real thing. Yeah. Mm. Um, like in football, you know, someone gets drafted and they say, Oh, this guy is going to be the next such and such. Mm -hmm. And if he's not the next such and such, it must mean this coach sucks or it must mm. mean this sucks or it must mean this is wrong instead of saying well maybe the first person that said this cat had potential was wrong or maybe at some point that potential it, it diminished you mm. know it, it, the reality isn't it, the the potential isn't as high as it once was so <clears throat> excuse me so here he says, yeah, your pure potential. Um, and I believe it's said elsewhere, potential is its own curse. That's what it is. Potential is its own curse because, mm. it, you know, it's, it's just an opinion. If potential is anything, it is just an opinion. And yet it turns into something tangible. Um, so yeah, they talk about the flask here and, mm. uh, um, yeah. So, I mean, there's a whole lot of shit happening here and man, are there words, but <laughs> what? I'm oh, sorry, go ahead. No, please. I, I, I that's why I was just going to say, what, yeah. what do we get? Well, there was, there was a, uh, part on playing to your limits that really stood mm -hmm. out to me. Because again, it reminded me of, of Hal and how he was talking about how he would play within his limits. Um, and here Jim is teaching 
his son, you play right up to your limit and then pass your limit, look back at your former limit and wave a hanky at it embarking. And he mentions the hanky three more times. Um, one, he says, talent is its own expectation. Jim, you either live up to it or it waves a hanky receding forever. So in the first, the first time he says, he basically says like, you play up, you play up right up to your limit. And then he says, um, so wait, hold on. He says that you wave a hanky at your limit. In this case, he's talking about waving a hanky at your talent, almost equating you being your talent. Like, and when I think back to like how the kids are, it's like, when I think back to Hal, it's like he, he doesn't have that, that, sen that sense of identity. Um, and I think he's grappling with this question a lot, like, who am I outside of tennis and a genius? Um, so like, it's funny just seeing this go back multiple generations of like, mm -hmm. you know, so how did, <clears throat> did, did Jim like in protest teach how to play up to his limits? Does, is how in protest to to his father playing only up to his limits and basically saying like, I, Hey, I know better. Like this is my form of rebellion and it's actually what's making me succeed in the long run. Um, yeah. And then the last time he mentions it is like farther down the page, but I didn't, I didn't quite, I didn't really dissect it as much, but he, he says again, I never got to wave my hanky at anything beyond the near and almost great would have been great if later could never even hope to audition for those swim trunk and bro cream beach movies that snake avalon is making his mint on um so again like three mentions of this hanky but like waving yeah. your hand something uh i figure that that couldn't have been yeah yeah um i i think that that yeah that's certainly not accidental that repetition um nor i would think is the rebellion um, another thing that I had highlighted here, uh, this is himself's father talking. I made him stomp and stagger and lunge. I wanted to humiliate him, which two generations later, we remember Hal lying in bed with Mario. You know, you really kicked his ass, Hal. And Hal's, yeah, I don't want to talk about that. Um, so maybe himself did a good job of instilling that where himself's father wanted nothing more than to humiliate his last tennis opponent. Hal didn't really want to talk about how badly he beat the guy. Mm -hmm. um, I like this one. <laughs> so then, yeah, the, uh, now I don't know where it is in here, but I did notice. Did, did anybody else notice what Jim refers to his father, Hal's grandfather, as? Did he also say himself? I feel like I might have. Liked. I was yes. going to say himself. Yes. This goes he back refers. Yeah. And I, I can't find where it is, but mm. he. 
Jim's <laughs> or Hal's father refers to his father as himself. Mm. Um, I that. And I can't find it here, but I know that it is here. Um, and <clears throat> all right, I'm just going to find the fucking thing eventually. Um, yeah, the first time I, I, I read it, or I might have even been listening to it. I'm I think it's that. in the fear of prodigy section. Oh, okay, that might be it. While himself sits and advises with his oh, flask. Yeah, no, no it it no. is. That's Different. another one, but uh, there is uh. one in this section. And huh. well, I if if and when I find it, I will um, post it. But yes, he does. Uh, Hal's father, Jim, refers to his father as himself right. which you know as we know that is what hal's father ends up being referred to as um so i mean as we know the um Jim's oh could it be page sorry could it be page 163 this is jim's father at the beginning um first half of the page and was i nervous young sir j-o-i with the one and only himself there in all his wooden glory there watching yes. half yes. in and out of the light expressionless i was not he's talking yes. about his father yep watching him play yes thank you and yeah so he refers to his father as himself which is interesting um yeah. and then you know as we know the chapter ends up with um himself's father himself's grandfather showing up once to see mm. himself's father play tennis um, and while it's not specific, I think we all know that the only reason that he showed up was because uh, he was playing a work colleague's son um, yeah. and himself's father falls and fucks up his knees and never plays tennis again. Right. Mm. So. Um, yeah, so we, we got that, um, Good. yeah, ta talent is its own expectation. You either live up to it or it waves a hanky, blah, blah, blah. Here lies a promising old man. Potential may be worse than none, Jim, than no talent to fritter in the first place. Lying around guzzling because I don't have the balls to... God, I'm so sorry, Jim. You don't deserve to see me like this. I'm so scared, Jim. I'm so scared of dying without ever being really seen. Can you understand? Are you enough of a big, thin, prematurely stooped, young, bespectacled man, even with your whole life still ahead of you to understand? Can you see I was giving it all I had? That I was in there? There we have that again. I'm mm. in here. 
that I was in there, out there, in the heat, listening, webbed with nerves. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, here we have himself's father really treating a 10 year old himself as a fucking psychiatrist, right? I was trying to relive through his son or you see, you know, parents do that. Like you're going to do better than I did or whatever, like whatever shortcomings they had, they want to make sure their kids don't have it. Or, you know what I'm trying to say? Like, mm-hmm. absolutely. Relive their childhood through their kids. And I almost feel like, you know, yeah. the yep. grandfather yep. or whatever is like a, a metaphor for like waving the hanky to the, the talent, you know, like, cause he says, you're going to overshadow and obliterate me. You know what I mean? It's he like, I don't know. And somehow in him beating him, he's, like he's successfully completing the cycle or I don't know. Yep. I have all these abstract thoughts, but um, how it all ties yeah. in. And- well, in this yeah. scene, obviously echoes other scenes in the book, namely the professional conversationalist scene, yeah. as well as the scene that we haven't gotten to when Jim and Jim are trying to fix the bed. Right. Um, same kind of stuff happening. Um, and I, I believe the, the same imagery is used. Uh, I've seen your long shadow grotesquely backlit at the top of the house's stairs. I helped pay for boy, how the drunk in the maimed both are dragged forward out of the arena, like a boneless Christ, one man under each arm, feet dragging eyes on the ether. I love the image like a boneless Christ. That's incredible. Yeah. Um, so the professional, why does this remind me so much of the professional? It was how didn't Hal go through like a mute phase or something like that? Or at least maybe that that was the impression. Allegedly. But mm-hmm. could could himself's father come out of this scene? Let's just picture it. Himself's father comes out of this scene, goes inside to fill his flask and sees his mother and says, you know, that fucking kid, he doesn't talk. He's mute. What is wrong with him? He doesn't talk. Well, yeah, because you've got to shut the fuck up for him to be able to. No. And eventually he gives up. Like, yeah. You know, and then and then where does where does all, where do those all those thoughts go? It's like they're just bouncing around and maybe that's how they turn into geniuses eventually it's like well you've you're well, just be information like i they both in, his in himself's case i think we know how it manifested um from the footnotes he created a film called as of your year of the tux medicated pad Um, 181 minutes, black and white and color and sound. A middle-aged tennis instructor preparing to instruct his son in tennis becomes intoxicated in the family's garage and subjects his son to a rambling monologue while the son weeps and perspires. Um, So this made enough of an impression upon himself that he turned it into a movie. Um, also turned into a movie, very low impact. 
Uh, a narcoleptic aerobics instructor struggles to hide her condition from students and employers, um, which obviously harkens back to the janitor there who got removed from BC for contracting narcolepsy. Um, and just while I'm back here, three cheers for cause and effect. The headmaster of a newly constructed high-altitude sports academy becomes neurotically obsessed with litigation over the construction's ancillary damage to a VA hospital far below as a way of diverting himself from his wife's poorly hidden affair with the academically renowned mathematical topologist who's acting as the project's architect. Um, and that again was an echo of reality because I believe that, uh, Avril, I can't remember the, the characters, but Avril did in fact have an affair with the person, uh, the architect who was shaving the top of the hill. All right. So, um, I, moving on here, this will probably be the last scene that we cover today, and it's a short one. Uh, Michael Pemulus uh, trying to shake any sort of fuzz that might be following him. Um, and this is mentioned, I believe, by Hal or through Hal, and it's something that always makes me laugh. You know, if if the cops have enough evidence and probable cause and everything else to tap my phone, it's not going to save either of us when Jack calls and says, hey, Jamie, do you want to play some darts today? And I, yeah, man, we could play some darts. What time do you want to play, Jack? And he says, well, let's play at eight. Eight would be really good for me. Or, or and... 28, Jamie. Play at 28, actually. Okay, yeah, yeah. We could do it at 28. And how much does that cost now? Oh, okay. 80, huh? The price went up. Okay, so 80. <laughs> I'll make sure that I bring that. And where should we play darts today? At that bar where we normally? Yeah. Okay, very good. You know what? That's not going to save either of us if the cops are actually listening to that phone call. Um, so, you know, Pemulus's antics and, you know, here where you have him, you know, hopping trains and buses in order to shake any sort of tail. Um, but in any case, he has scored the incredibly potent DMZ. Mm -hmm. A uh, little bit of a background. It's pretty funny. Uh, DMZ is sometimes also referred to in some Metro Boston chemical circles as Madam Psychosis after a popular very early morning. So it, it would be funny to me that, you know, in this area, you know, like if in Rochester, New York, everyone referred to bath salts as the name of a uh, local dj would be kind of <laughs> kind of a lot but um 
so yeah, so Pemulus goes and gets the thing. Uh, the Ennett House kid is working at the portcullis and lets mm. him in. Um, and then Pemulus calls Hal to say that the turd emerges. I always use the line, the eagle has landed. Um, you know, like if I'm if I'm on an errand and and someone else has a vested interest in that errand, you know, my joke would always be the the eagle has landed. Um, but that um yeah, so uh Hal is reading the Riverside Hamlet which is uh, kind of lazy symbolism, but um, any, anything else here in this little chapter that you noticed? I forgot, is DMZ an actual drug or is this made up for the book? It is an actual drug and it's actually made somewhat of a comeback recently cool. as i understand i've never done Z dmz um but i heard like a buddy of mine was telling me yeah there's some shit going around i don't know someone told me it's it like makes it the way this drug was described to me is that it seems like eight hours have passed but it's really only been like 15 minutes mm. so dmt is supposed to be like that from what i understand it's like a very short experience but it feels like it's been eight hours okay and, and maybe that was the one that was making the rounds um, i think dmt is making a comeback dmt is what you're thinking of i think okay because that's, that's how I, that's how it was described to me as like being so <clears> fucked <throat> up and that you think so much time has passed, but but when you kind of come out on the other end of it, so much time has not passed. It's horrible. <laughs> yeah. It's like a very quick acid trip. Yes. You get all the effects, but just condensed into. Yes. <laughs> um, oh, I did think this was funny. His uncushioned captain's chair, partly under an old print of a detail from the minor and softcore Alexandrian mosaic, consummation of the Leverites. Um, so the Onan, we, we know the Onan Organization of North American Nations, um, that goes back to Onan in the Bible, um, where Onan was chastised or whatever for spilling his seed. Um, so if you look into that and say, well, what the fuck does that mean? Basically, under, under very old Old Testament Jewish law, if your brother, let's say your brother is married and doesn't have any kids and your brother dies before he has kids, it is your duty to impregnate your sister-in-law so that she can have a kid with the family name 
um, you know, kind of like the Bidens, you know, it's, it, and it, it keeps things moving. Well, so Onan went over to his sister-in-law's and he did the business, but then he pulled out, um, which was what the Leverites did. So that is where, where it's, Onan spilled his seed. That's what he did. Don't worry. He fucked his sister-in-law, but he just didn't, you know, he, he pulled out and spilled his seed. So by that um, definition, it appears that Pemulus has a mosaic of someone pulling out <laughs> and spilling their seed, um, which is very funny. Um, this is how that kind of reminds you of the Byzantine erotica again. Where yeah. you are exactly right. It is Hal, not Pemulus. Oh, the first oh. thing he does is boot up. Right. The first thing he Pemulus does is boot up the phone console and try Ink and Mario's room, where Hal is sitting in window light with the Riverside Hamlet. Mm. Uh, his uncushioned captain's chair partly under an old print of a detail from the minor and soft core Alexandrian mosaic consummation of the leverets eating an amino pal energy bar and waiting very casually. So yeah, waiting very casually like Ken or Daddy, right? Yeah. The right. phone with its antenna already out, lying ready uh -huh. on the arm of the chair. Um. Yeah, under a mosaic of someone pulling out. Um, Wasn't the medical attache also sitting? They described him as being sitting, as seated, un, seated under a, a, yeah, some sort of yeah Byzantine erotica. Yes, um, if it's along the lines. All right, I can't even think of anything funny that. Uh, <sighs> Like, I, yeah, maybe he's he's sitting under a picture of someone lubing up. I don't know. Um, I, I'm not I'm not sure. <laughs> I just really don't know who the medical attache is. So I'm just like. It's, yeah, he's not a I mean, you, you had the theory that it was himself. I, I forgot where it falls on the timeline. I mean, I, there are a lot of people that suggest that he could be Hal's father. Um, I mean, and, and look, it's not far-fetched. Hal's mother fucked him. So just by that definition, he could be Hal's father, you know, not knowing anything else about it. Um, mm. They have the same color skin. They both like Byzantine erotica, although I don't believe that that is genetic. Um it is it is specific though like mm -hmm. look i don't think i've ever read those two words together before <laughs> this book right. uh, it's always just been either erotica or byzantine i didn't know the sure <laughs> and yeah I don't, <laughs> sticking out yeah um <laughs> all right so yeah that so we will pick up next time with tennis and the feral prodigy and then we have the uh um the intake of the uh at the ennet house and then um we have the radio show
So, um, right. you know, in terms of, I always, first, I don't recommend this book to a lot of people. And when I do, I kind of cringe, mm -hmm. you know, uh -huh. because uh -huh. it, I really get the impression that certainly what we've read today for today, and maybe even a little bit further in the book is Wallace's attempt to say, are you sure you want to read this fucking thing? Like, <laughs> really? Like, are you sure? You, you're really still with it. me, huh? All right. <laughs> if you're still here, you probably, but I'm going to give you one more test. <laughs> um, you know, he, he does. I, I feel like, um, you know, using the setting of the book, I feel like Boston as a city or community or highway department, they do everything they can to discourage people from driving in Boston. The roads are a fucking joke. The traffic is a fucking joke. Like there is nothing about driving in Boston that is a pleasure. There, oh, there wow. is nothing that is easy about driving in Boston. Parking is idiotic and expensive. So, I mean, there, there's just nothing about it. And I, I really feel like certainly at the beginning of this book, that's what it feels like. Like, like the actual writer of the book is like, are you sure that this is what you want to do with the next couple months of your life? Um, it, it might not be fun, probably not going to be easy. Um, but at some point and some point soon, I feel like we start to go downhill where it mm. isn't a chore mm. to make it through a chapter. You're not more confused when you finish a chapter than when you started. Um, you know, and that to me is part of the reward of this book. Hmm. Um, you know, like, like if I, if I were to start lifting weights today and I, well, you know, I saw on TV once someone lifted all these weights. So that's where I'll start. That's not going to happen. Um, and at, at some point in my weightlifting journey, I'm going to be offered and consider every single off ramp I can before I notice true progress. Like before I get to the point where I say, wow, this thing that I just lifted 30 times with no effort was what I struggled with the first day. Um, and mm -hmm. I, I feel like that's how reading this book goes. And we are going to get to the point soon where we say, oh yeah, I know all of these guys. I didn't know they'd be in the same room together, mm -hmm. but I know a little bit of something about each and every one of these people. You wanted to make sure you were really committed before you get that reward, that payoff. You know, are you in it with me or not? Let's see, you know, can you make it through yeah. the tough stuff to get to the I mean, yeah, not that, you know, any part of this book is necessarily easy to read or whatever, you know, I've read a million books. This is definitely one like no other. Mm -hmm. I mean, all his writing is different, but um, yeah, the payoff is great, I think, you know, because there are some pages in there where you're like, oh man, another end note. What's this one going to go on for like five pages, a <laughs> three page long paragraph? You know, it's a challenge, but then like, 
it really does pay off because it's so extraordinarily different and insightful in just so many different ways that yeah the the, the reward i think is is worth the the work you got to put in for this novel yeah Definitely. just noticing a payoff yeah. that you know and, and then you you look back and in, in some cases in, in something that is unique to this book you look forward and mm -hmm. say holy fuck man did he did he lay some legwork for Seriously. this payoff um you know, for this joke or for this realization or whatever. Oh, so that's what that 20 page long paragraph was about before. Okay, now I get it. Yeah. Yep. Right. I have, I have two things that, well, one, this is probably, well, which one is one? One is that I, I, I have like, yeah, this is the first week where I was like, okay, every section was super interesting to me. Like, taken as individual essays and not because I, I don't I don't know where the story is really going at all uh mm -hmm. but at the very least the content like sans characters is starting to get really interesting um and then I had something else that I was gonna mention but oh yeah the fact that the number of times I've said up to this point how many more characters are they gonna add like <laughs> at some point we got to get the story here <laughs> And it, it's Maybe. slowly starting to like become a blurry fuzz of a picture. I feel like I'm banging the TV a little bit, like moving the antennas, but um, it's just, it feels good to hear you say that. Uh, but like, I feel like it's, I feel like I, I started to realize that this, this read through where I was like, I'm looking forward to the next one. Or like I read over without realizing it and uh, wasn't like, yeah. let me just get caught up. In yeah. Oh, yeah, sure. and that's not to say that the heavy lifting is almost done because it's not. I mean, it expects to be. It's only there, one seventeen. I yeah. mean, I I can only think of one instance in the book where it's oh this happened. Um, Penlius walking in on Avril and John Wayne where, okay, this happened. You know, you don't have to figure it out. You don't have to, you know, use three different sources and two different descriptions. Um, you know, it's there. But a, a lot of it does require lifting um, um you know so just real quick say that uh one of the things that really helped was you pointing out in the beginning that like 90 percent of the book was narration um the number of times i like i would read 20 pages and then ask myself who's just talking there and then realize hmm. like that was all narration like mm -hmm. what's happening but it's yeah there's there's not much interaction so that that really like helped in far in terms of like reading comprehension of what's i kept expecting dialogue kept expecting like things to unfold. well and it reads like dialogue where yeah. like you said you think you've just read pages of dialogue but you didn't you you read someone recounting dialogue or or something um mm. you know but one of the things and we talked about this is you know what is seen and what is not seen but 
somewhere throughout the production of the drug testing, it, it didn't go well, right? Because as a result of this drug testing session, someone or multiple people failed their drug test. Um, you know, and and we'll get into that. There's a scene later in the book where they kind of get called out on it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we'd never know it from what we read today. There, I, I didn't see any foreshadowing there. Um, but, you know, there, there is a lot of that here. And, and yes, while the heavy lifting is not done, things start to fall into place, um, which for me at least makes it a little bit more enjoyable. So, guys, thank you. It's great to see you all. Thank you. Sorry I missed last time. It's good to be back. Uh, Hopefully, Sasha will be back next week or next time. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And, um, yeah, so we'll get something out. Probably uh, we'll get together again probably within the next week or two um, because I feel like probably most of us are ahead in the reading and Mm. certainly most of us, this is a reread. Um, you know, the bigger time constraint is I talk too much. So, um, it's certainly not our, uh, reading speed, but, um, guys, thank you so much again, and I will see you soon. Thanks, everyone. Have a good night. Thank you. Thank you, everyone.